to Fantasy Feud, a pitcherless baseball podcast where we're tackling the most relevant debates in fantasy baseball each week. I'm Sarah Sanchez, and I'm here with my co-host, Shelly Verstrait, to talk through both sides of the hottest fantasy baseball debates right now with some of the greatest minds in the industry. And y'all, it was Tout Wars today. So if you were listening on Sirius XM Radio or if you're following along on the playback, you might have seen this draft take place live. This is the 15-team alternate categories draft. We'll talk more about that in a second. But hopefully, we've got some good insights that will help you with your draft prep and more. Shelly, how's it going for you? Oh, uh, yeah, it, it's going great. Um, you know, um, I just finally got to, you know, take a look at the y'all's draft board um, uh, today. And uh, baseball's already started. Like, there's games going on. And, you know, I'm going down to, to Florida, at, uh, you know, for like a, a day or so. Like, I have like some work stuff that I can't go for the entire weekend. But yeah, I'm going to, you know, catch up with, you know, some people that I've met before, haven't met before. And, Yeah, it's just, it's been like really awesome. Yeah, first pitch Florida just around the corner. I am so jealous you are going. And so is our guest uh, who you know from the CBS Fantasy Baseball Today podcast. He's also one of my league mates in Tout Wars. We've been in this league. I think that's my third year in the league. Chris was in this league long Mm -hmm. before I was the one and only Chris Towers. Uh, Chris, I have to tell you, Fantasy Baseball Today was the first baseball podcast that I listened to religiously. So it's really fun to have you on the show. That's really cool to hear. I, I always love hearing that. And I know we've had, you know, we've been doing the show for uh, 12 or 13 years at this point. We've had a lot of people come through, but I, I've been a part of it for, gosh, like eight years now. And it's it's always so gratifying when when people say that. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for the great work that you've been doing. We've got a link to the draft board that we will include in the show notes. So hopefully mm-hmm. you'll be able to follow along. I know some people requested that with both the GLARF and DARF draft recaps that we had done. Uh, those are not publicly available, so I couldn't link them, but I can link this Tout Wars draft because it is publicly available. Before we jump into the debates, a reminder, this is a debate podcast, so we have some rules of the road. You get to make your case for three minutes, then you get to make your rebuttal to that case for three minutes. Each debate has a moderator. We have a two-minute question and answer period for the debaters between, and those could be questions from the moderator or questions from each of us. Uh, and then there's a one-minute rebuttal on each of these issues. Before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about what the alternate categories in this league are, because I think that that's really important for setting the Mm -hmm. stage here. This league uses on-base percentage instead of average. It uses innings pitched instead of wins. And it uses saves plus holds instead of saves, which is going to be super relevant to how the draft plays out. And before we get into our first debate, which is whether or not this is a good setting Chris, just generally, how do you feel about these categories? I I mean, I play in, I don't know, 12 or 14 leagues every year. So the, the novelty of it alone makes it one of my favorite leagues just because it it is something different. It allows you to to use a little bit different part of your brain and, and get some different players on your team, perhaps. So I think that part, you know, for the for the sickos who, who play dozens of leagues, I, I think is always uh, a nice thing. So. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. We we did switch this year. It's been a 12 team league the entire time I've been in. It's a 15 team this year, and you definitely notice it while you're drafting because this is the first 15 team league that I've drafted fully all the way through and of uh, this season. And you definitely notice like round 19, I was like, oh, there's still a lot of good players left, 
And then every single one of them got taken. And it's like, oh, there weren't really that many good players left. There were like nine of them and they got drafted right before my next pick. So yeah, I definitely, definitely felt the 15 teaminess of it this week, this time. It's such a great point. I anticipated that that was going to be an issue and it was an even bigger issue than I thought it was Mm -hmm. going to be. I tweeted out my draft results like I always do after this draft and Once again, this year, I have waited too long on the outfield. I've got some YOLO situations going on in the outfield, and I think it might work out okay. I really like my team. My draft software loves my team, which, you know, I was kind of joking with this about Todd with Todd Zola on the playback, but of course your draft software should love your team. That's why you're using it. But there were moments where I was feeling the pressure, and the difference between a 12-teamer and a 15-teamer, as far as I'm concerned, is that you make choices and you just have to live with the consequences of those choices. It's like, well, waited on starting pitching, going to do something different. Waited on the outfield, we're going to have some fun with Nelson Velasquez late. <laughs> That's your, just team, how it goes. your team is never going to be perfect in any draft. Like, I guess it's possible to, to draft a perfect team, but it's probably not going to be. Things happen across the, the, the way, and that is so much more true in a 15-team league. I already wrote up my... Uh, my reaction to this draft that that's on cbssports.com. And it, if you think fantasy analysts are too positive about their own drafts, just read mine. Cause I, <laughs> I, I didn't think I nailed it. Like I, I think it's a pretty good team. I can compete in it, but I definitely have issues for sure. And maybe it's that it's my first 15 team league of the year. And I'm just trying to get my calibration right on it. But I definitely look at it and I'm like, oh God, things things kind of went sideways on me on the pitching side, especially. Yeah, let's jump into it. I have not read your recap yet, but I'm going to go read that as soon as we're done here. So the first debate, uh, I want to talk about these alternate categories specifically. So not the general concept of using different categories, but mm-hmm. the ones we're using here. And again, that is on base percentage versus average. Innings pitched instead of wins. Saves plus holds instead of saves. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick us off here. This is my favorite setting for a league. If I was designing a league tomorrow, it would look exactly like this. I think that innings pitched over wins is such a better way to ca- to calibrate what pitchers are actually doing and take some of the guesswork out of it. Because a win, a win is such a capricious stat. Like you go in there and shove for six or seven innings, you only give up one run, and the bullpen comes in and blows it. You get nothing. <laughs> do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. You get nothing. And I hate that about some of the stats that we use. Similarly, saves are kind of going the way of the dodo bird. And there's so many good setup men in relief who just get way devalued, even though their skills are so incredible. The one thing I would say about this particular league that I miss, and Chris already mentioned it, I loved it as a Mm 12-teamer. The pickups that I've made on the waiver wire in this league in the past were incredible. I picked up Christian Javier a couple of years ago, and he saved my season. And that is just not going to happen this year because in my last rounds, I was drafting Martin Perez and Jose Quintana, so I would have enough innings. Chris, to you. My my maybe most boomer-coded fantasy baseball take is... I don't have a problem with wins as a category. I don't have a problem with saves as a category. I don't have a problem with batting. I I understand that they are quote unquote worse stats than some of the alternatives. Although I think the, the people who want quality starts instead of wins, you're just trading one bad stat for another there. So I'm completely like, I I don't have a, a strong opinion about that one either way, but I, I think it, the biggest thing when it comes to how you want to set up your league and, And in this league, I like the alternative of it because it's one of the 12 teams I play. But 
I, I think the only thing that matters is whether the people are, are drafting in that league have fun with it. And so if someone really doesn't want wins in your league, get rid of wins. I don't care. But I'm not, I don't, I don't think it makes the game better or worse. I think there are some interesting wrinkles specifically about the innings pitched and saves plus holds being two different categories that I think makes this league really interesting and, and causes some some really interesting trade-offs that you don't necessarily have to make in other leagues because wins are a counting step. But I think last year, the average first place team had 89 wins in a 12-team CBS league. That's a relatively low number. Innings, you have to have a lot of them. I think I was in fourth place last year in innings and I had like 1,200 of them as a team. So it really does create some some interesting trade-offs, but in a 15-team league especially, in drafting this one, I kind of felt like the trade-offs that you had to make at innings pitched versus saves and holds might have tipped it too far with the, the player pool having to go so much deeper this year. So I think the format's super fun. I don't necessarily think it's the best or certainly not the only way that you should play fantasy baseball. Yeah, I mean, just like just looking at this league, uh, just coming in it today and just like looking at the settings and stuff. Um, it, it's really interesting because I play in an OBP innings pitch league, but it's a dynasty league, mm -hmm. but it has everyday waivers, which makes it totally different. So you can stream pitchers and stuff like that. And let me get this right. Tout Wars, it's the weekly fab, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. Okay. So I, I, I'm just curious, just as just someone on the outside, um, is there a lot of streaming in this league? Just, just totally out of curiosity. So the thing that's really tough about the software specifically the Tout Wars plays on, and, and I know I'm doing labor for the first time this year, and, and I, I know that's a whole other thing, but with specifically with Tout Wars, you have, I think if you add a player, you have to start them that week. So it you can stream for sure. Like if you're going to stream, that's the way to do it because you can't really like preemptively pick. I think I'm trying to remember if, if the rule is, can you just not preemptively pick up minor leaguers in this league? I don't, I don't think you can preemptively pick up minor leaguers. You can draft them, but they you can't pick them up in, yeah. if they weren't drafted. Yeah. Um, and the other weird thing about this, it's such a great point about needing to have somebody on your roster when you pick them up. So you can't really speculate mm -hmm. on somebody who might get a job in two weeks because yeah. if they're sitting on the bench that whole time, like that is a week where you're getting a zero. And it, it really kills you in innings pitched. That that's a, that's a really, it's that, that inning pitch component really changes the way you have to approach your, your team building and, Again, as I said, the when I wrote my article, I, I really kind of tripped up on it this year. Yes. Uh, one thing I want to add to that, and then I'll turn it back to Shelly as our moderator for this debate, but I have been messing up this innings pitch, strikeout, saves, hold situation every year I've been in the league. So the last two years, I've dominated in saves and holds. My ratios have been great, and I am so close to the bottom in innings pitch that I am then struggling to get enough strikeouts to be competitive. It's like I'm I'm gaining three categories to lose two and I'm trying to find a balance that will keep me in the top of all of them. And it is a it was a rough balance in a 12 teamer. I have no idea what this is going to look like in a 15 teamer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, I just think this is going to be extremely fascinating. Just going from, you know, just you guys have been in this league before and it's going from a 12 to 15 and no one knows what's going to happen. I think this is going to be an awesome league. So I'm excited to like watch from the periphery to see how y'all guys do. As am I. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with my rebuttal here. And uh, Chris, I can't, I can't get over this idea that like the categories don't matter at all. I mean, this is this is breaking my brain a little bit because some categories are just better than others. I, I think I innings pitched, for example, is what I want out of a pitcher. Like I want a guy who's going to give me. It used to be two twenty plus. That doesn't exist anymore. And then it was two hundred plus, and that doesn't exist anymore. So now we're like, if you can throw one hundred and eighty innings in a season, if you're one of the twelve guys that is going to do that consistently, that is gold. And it's amazing how quickly those guys go off the board particularly in this league, but I'm trying, you are correct that like you can, you can adapt the auction calculator or your draft software or whatever to any rules you want. I mean, this is reminding me of a couple of years ago. I won my home league in fantasy football, which is a really weird, like two keeper situation, IDP. We do an auction. Like there's a bunch of random things going on and we change the rules every single year in the off season when we're arguing about it. And frankly, as we were arguing about the rules the year that I won it, because I was one of those people who had a really low point total that wound up winning all my head-to-head matchups and won the league and it made everybody cranky. Just like, make the settings whatever you want. I will still win. <laughs> so I don't know. I, maybe I'm agreeing with you. Well, th- that's, yeah, that's my, my thing is whatever the settings are, that's what you have to play with. And everybody's playing with the same tool set, right? So when I'm looking at like adding innings pitched instead of wins, I think in some ways you're kind of double counting when you add innings pitch because strikeouts are already a category and like they're different things, but strikeouts are in many ways, a product of pitching a lot of innings. And so I I do worry that you can skew the balance there in a way that like might overrate one player or another, but ultimately a batting average league overrates one player versus another, right? Like Kyle Schwarber, we know he's a great hitter, but batting average underrates him. Luis Arias, he's a really, really good hitter. That's the only thing he does. And so that's one of those things where I think there's a it's an there's an art to finding the right balance, no matter what league you're playing in, right? If it's if it's wins, I think wins are a, a bad stat. I don't think they they tell us much about a pitcher's value necessarily, but there is something to be said for identifying which pitchers on which teams are going to have a lot of wins and obviously there's the randomness of it. So I get why that bothers people, but I also have the hot take that randomness and randomness in fantasy sports is a feature and not a bug. And people who like the best team should win every year. The best player should win. That, that's boring. It, it, it would be bad if the best player won your league every year and everyone would stop playing in that league if that's the case. So that that's, that's why for me, the, the specifics don't matter. I'll, I'll build the team any way I want, any way the, the rule setting says. Love it. Shelly, take us into our next debate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just kind of um, just looking at the draft and how it was, you know, kind of like live streamed and it was also broadcast on Sirius XM. Do y'all like live stream public drafts better or are you just kind of like indifferent between like a normal draft. Chris, as our guest, start us off. 
I love it. I love doing a live stream. We're doing one on, on fantasy baseball today on Wednesday night. It's going to be uh, a live, I think full 23 round Roto draft. And I, I love, especially if, if you guys listen to fantasy baseball today or watch us, especially watching Scott white when he's doing a live draft is so much fun because at the end of the draft, he's always like, Oh, I like my team. But during like round nine, you have never seen someone so apoplectic about anything in their life as Scott White in round nine of a draft. So I think it's really fun. I think it it adds a strategy. It it recreates the feeling of what I used to do a lot growing up, which was going over to my friend's house for our drafts every year. You know, now that I'm in my my mid thirties and, and all my friends live all over the country, we like get together on Zoom for our drafts, but it's not the same. And so, you know, having that live feeling, I, I think add something to it. I think there's also the degree of difficulty in having to juggle multiple things. I think that adds something interesting to it. It's also partially like I've got ADHD. I like multitasking. I, I think I operate a little better that way anyway. Like when I'm working, I've always got tweet deck open and I've got a thousand tweets going on on my screen at once. So that's just the way my brain operates. So like it doesn't really create extra pressure for me. It's just it makes it more fun, I think. Oh, that's a great answer. And I appreciate that it's so much fun and people love watching us draft and seeing how things are playing out in real time. I was actually looking back and uh, our friends who were in the draft, Joe Rico and John Legaza, were live streaming this one. I'm actually going to go back and watch their live stream later to get their real-time reactions. DVR was talking about it in the Rates and Barrels Discord. We had the playback going on with the Tout Wars folks that I was I was super engaged with and also toss back to the Glarf episode a couple of weeks ago. It's so nerve-wracking. <laughs> I'm sitting there in the fourth and I've got like the serious XM person telling me that they're going to call me in two minutes and I'm trying to get my cue ready so that I'm sure that I'm not going to make a mistake while I'm on the radio because and I knew they would want to talk to me like I we're going to talk about it in a little bit but I took Strider second overall and I, I did that deliberately and I knew that was going to be a thing where somebody was going to call me and be like why did you take Strider with the second pick overall and so I knew it was coming but I was also a little bit nervous and I admit that if I had had like 30 seconds of quiet to think about the Justin Steele versus Max Freed situation a little bit longer I might have made a different choice mm -hmm. although I do love Justin Steele. I believe he's great in an innings pitch format. And I'm a little worried about Freed's injury history. So I, it's a defensible choice, but it's one that I might have done differently had I not been chatting on the radio and playing with the playback and trying to set my cue three rounds in advance. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally understand that. Um, I am more of a fly by the seat of you, your pants kind of drafter. So I'm, I'm kind of like with Chris with this and I love the whole live interaction. You have to make a decision right on the, right on the spot. Um, I was in my first ever like live, live draft because when I first started playing fantasy, it was on like a Yahoo league that I was just like, Oh, I, I'm bored. Let me just, let me just start playing. Right. So I've never actually done like a live draft until last year. And it was an auction. So it's totally different from what y'all guys are doing. But it was so exciting and engaging. Um, and I mean, even just doing like a fast draft, I just love just being like, okay, I feel this. I, I like this player right now. I'm going to go get him. I don't, I don't care. So 
I'll, I'll give it back to you, Sarah, for any type of uh, rebuttal on. I, I know that you, the uh, the pressure kind of builds a little bit for you. Um, are you still, I don't know, still kind of cool with this whole live draft thing? Or would you rather kind of be in like maybe a slow draft, like a one hour draft or something like that? I think it's good for me to challenge myself. And so I'm really glad that I do this draft every year. I'm glad the Glarf draft is in person. I think that Chris absolutely nailed it in terms of like the being there with your friends is so fun. And even though I have moments in those drafts where I think I make a decision that is slightly less good than a decision I might make with my headphones on in my room and like all of my spreadsheets and tools, I it's still fun and you can correct for it. One of the things I say on this podcast a lot, and I'm going to stand by it, drafting is modular strategy, right? Like you can't go in with a plan of I'm going to take mm-hmm. this guy and then this guy and then this guy and then this guy because somebody else might take one of those guys. So you have to have an if then type of thing going on in your head and Drafting is really like a choose your own adventure thing. Like I'm going to take a pitcher number one. That means I have to do something. What do I do? Number two, do I double down on pitching and try to make it really difficult for everybody else? Or do I take a bunch of hitters at that point? And so you really are sort of like, if this, then go to page 26. And I appreciate that aspect of the whole thing. I also appreciate that it is good for me to challenge myself. And also every now and again, I make a pick and I look at it later and I'm kicking myself for two hours because I'm just like, oh, I would have done that differently. <laughs> the psychology of it, I think, is really interesting. And this is something that I talk about a lot on the podcast because we'll do like a one live salary cap slash auction every year, which is <clears throat> it's always a disaster. It ends up being like a three hour podcast where we don't even include the final hour like that because they take forever. And that's something that I'm doing uh, AL labor for the first time on Friday. And Frank Stample, who hosts fantasy baseball today is doing NL labor on Saturday. And he keeps asking me, who do you want? Who, who, who are you going to get? And I'm like, that's not how I approach it. Like, like Shelly said, I'm very much a, I'm just going to see what happens. Like I know who I want. I've got my rankings. I, I go off my rankings. I've got my valuations. I, I spent a couple hours doing specific valuations for the Tout Wars format, all that. But like, I'm I'm very rarely outside of my first pick going to be like, I need this guy. Because what happens, especially in a live draft, and I think this is what makes live drafts fun, and why I think I, I, I handle them okay, is because when you go in and say, this guy is the key to my strategy, and someone takes him, Riley Green is my favorite player this year relative to expectations. I think I'm like 50 picks ahead of the the consensus ranking on him this year. He went, I think, 100th overall in this draft, which is higher than I even have him. And if that was my, if I had been like, I'm going to wait on outfield because I love Riley Green and I'm going to get him in the 11th round and he goes in the 8th, well, I just screwed myself up. So that that's... That's why I I enjoy live drafts and I'm good at not getting too wound up about them, I think is the way I would put it. That is an awesome point and a great segue to our next debate. But first, we're going to take a quick break from for our sponsors. On the flip side, we're going to talk about ADP and how much it influences the picks that you're making. And in a draft like this in particular with alternate categories, it can be sort of wild with people just going with their own guys instead of ADP. But first, a quick break. And we're back. Shelly, do you want to take us into this ADP P debate? Yeah. Like who, who cares about ADP, right? Um, especially when it comes to like this, this league, this league is really different because usually with ADPs, it's what traditional five by five roto kind of categories. So ADP really 
doesn't mean anything, right? So it seems just looking at the draft board that everyone else in the league kind of, you know, agreed. Um, but I'll go to you, Chris. Like, what do you, what do you, when you stepped into this draft, uh, were you, did you have like an ADP list that you followed or did you just kind of, what did you do? So it's, it's always interesting because, <clears throat> you know, when I draft on CBS where I play most of my leagues, my rankings are in the tool already. That's, that's part of our product. Me, Frank, and Scott are there. And so it's always really easy. And then when I draft everywhere else, it, it kind of becomes messy and I'm not a super organized person. And I did a good job of keeping track of all the players in the, in the range that I wanted them and, and all that and who had been taken. But yeah, it's, it's always a tough game to play with ADP because one, every year, the fantasy, both football, baseball, I don't play basketball anymore, but I assume it's the same way. It is so hard to find an edge now. It used to be that like Bryce Elder, 15 years ago, Bryce Elder would have been like a seventh round pick coming off the season he had. And this year, everyone knows, okay, he had the second half collapse and also just his overall numbers were not sustainable, even with the second half regression. And so that's one thing that has really changed. And, and so when you try to get too cute, and you try to go away from ADP and say, I'm going to buck the trends. I'm going to zig where everyone zags. You can get into trouble because there's a lot of wisdom in the crowds these days. And, and these projection systems are really accurate and they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Even the best projection systems miss on a lot of things. But I think you're probably better off generally trying to stay the course with ADP. And, and in this one in particular, what I did was because it's 80, because it's OBP, because it's innings pitched, that lends itself to the way the CBS Sports points format works, where you get a third of a point per, you get a point per third inning pitched, and you get points for walks and doubles and, and everything else. So it, it, I think, reflects real life value a little better. And so I just kind of built my rankings for this league off of that, which are, you know, a, a reflection of, of a lot of the ADP data and, and, and projections and stuff. So I feel like I did okay in that regard, but it is tough when there's not actually an ADP source to go off for this league. So it, it was, I, I definitely felt it while drafting. Yeah. I also felt it while drafting and I, and I regret looking at ADP as long as I did. I think we talked about this a show or two ago, but you know, at some point you just kind of let go of ADP, especially if you're at the ends. And mm -hmm. I was drafting second overall in this draft. Chris was drafting third overall. Like you kind of can't, you have to make decisions because there's so many picks before you go again when your turns come to you. But I usually try to follow along with ADP until about the 11th round, the 12th round, something like that. And I really wish I would have jettisoned it earlier in this one because there are a couple of guys, two in particular. Yes, they're both Cubs or former Cubs. Uh, who I really wanted in this format because of the on-base percentage factor, who I did not get because other people jumped them way above where I was going to jump them. And that is Wilson Contreras, a catcher. I was going to take Wilson in like the ninth or 10th round. And I thought that that was me being a little bit like, oh, I'm jumping Wilson like two rounds. And I'm it's going to be great because I'm going to get catcher with an on-base percentage above 350. And he's going to hit 20 home runs and a good Cardinals lineup and everything's going to be great. And he went with the fourth pick in the eighth round. So somebody else liked Wilson Contreras even more than I did in this format, which is a testament to Matt Cederholm. Um, the second guy who I felt like was really a great fit for this particular format is Seiya Suzuki. Mm -hmm. 
And again, I was like, oh, say it's going to come back to me. I'm going to jump in like three rounds and that's going to be a crush. And I think I mentioned earlier that I had sort of been waiting on the outfield and I was like, say it's going to fix all of that for me. And he went about eight picks before I could do that. So that's one of those situations where I, the second I lost both of those two guys, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done with this waiting business. I have to go to just get my guys right now. And I really liked my draft from that point on. Like I was kind of like, I think starting with the Noel V Marte pick, I was really just like, I'm, I'm going to go get my guys and I'm going to, I'm going to have some fun. But uh, I should have jettisoned ADP about three rounds earlier this way. Yeah. I, I, as it's kind of been like said, like on a couple episodes before, I really just look at ADP just to get like the first couple of rounds, just to get like, okay, I'm picking fifth. So let me just kind of like snake this out for like three rounds. And then after that, I really don't really look at ADP, relatively speaking. Um, like on the NFBC sites, I load my, uh, you know, just like the last week's um, ADP into the regular like ADP queue. So I know where guys are kind of going. So someone doesn't, you know, sneak too far. But yeah, I don't even know how I would tackle this type of league, <laughs> to be honest, because I'm just like, I would probably just kind of, you know, go free range. But, you know, and it seems like that's what everyone did. Anyone have any rebuttals? No, I mean, the the biggest thing for me is <clears throat> I, I do think like when I build my rankings, the first thing I do is I take like an aggregate, like basically the fantasy pros aggregate uh, ADP data. And that's kind of just where I start because I'll just let everyone else do the work for me. I'm lazy. So I'm going to, I'm going to start there. And then like, obviously I, I like Riley green a lot more. So I move him like there. I'm not just reprinting the aggregate rankings. I'm taking in other factors. I'm taking in, in projections, but that's, that's the baseline. Cause I, I do think there's a lot of wisdom, th the wisdom of the crowds argument, but I will say my favorite thing about drafting in every fantasy sport that I've ever played in is we do all these mock drafts, we do all this prep. The last week before the season, it all goes out the window completely. And everyone just decides, this is my last draft. I need to get Ellie De La Cruz. I'm going to take him 17th overall. Like that is that is my favorite thing because when the chips are on the table, everyone just goes with their guy. And and I, I always think it's so much more fun when people draft that way. Whereas my TGFBI draft, like we're on the the 60 the, the 80th pick and there are only three players with an ADP lower than 80 right now. It's basically drafting off ADP. That's probably smart. It's not the most fun way to draft though. Yeah. I mean, I think that I like to have one draft that I do every year where I'm just kind of like, no, this is what I really, really think. This is Sarah Sanchez TM, how I think the fantasy season is going to go down and it usually is to chris's point like one of my last drafts of the year where i'm just like this is actually what i think is going to happen and sometimes those teams don't work out very well but they're a lot of fun to play and i love having those guys who i think are going to have a great season on them so i think it's always worth remembering what the rules are in your draft and whether adp even reflects those at all in this particular mm -hmm. draft it, it does not and so one of the lessons i'll take from this draft is next year when I come into this thing, if I feel like Wilson Contreras is a better catcher value than anyone going sixth round on, I'm just going to take him in the sixth and y'all are going to have to live with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, I love it. I mean, 
every 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 fantasy manager has that that YOLO draft right at the end of the season where you're just like, I'm just gonna take my guys. Um, uh, yeah, that's always that's always like the favorite, like my fun team to watch. You know, it could crash and burn, but yeah. That was uh, I just wrote an article for CBSSports.com, my all FOMO team, and it's like if I was just playing one league, I probably I might not draft any of these guys, but since I'm playing twelve, I'm definitely gonna have. Ellie Dale Cruz on at least one of them and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. on at least one of them. And, and all the, but I'm going to have Byron Buxton on most of my teams because I love him forever. But he's one of those players where if I was playing one league out, I don't know if I'd take him 200th overall even, but I'm going to have him on at least some of my teams because the upside is so obvious. Well, and there's never been a better season to draft Byron Buxton. He's going so late. It's like, this is, this is the year. <laughs> and he's, yellow. Currently, he's currently healthy. <laughs> It doesn't mean he will be. He's healthy today, which we couldn't (laughs) say this time last year, at least. So true. Shelly, take us into our fourth debate. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of want to like pick y'all brains, uh, pick y'all's brains about starting pitching. Cause y'all said that this went from a 12 to 15 uh, team league. Mm -hmm. Um, Did y'all coming in to this particular draft, so for today, did y'all have any particular like different starting pitcher strategy or were you just like, I'm just going to kind of go with what I've done before? Uh, Sarah, I'll go with you. So this is going to come up a little bit later because uh, as you can see on the draft board, I did go with Spencer Strider number two overall, but that's a whole other debate. So I'll save that for a second. I was not sure how this was going to go. And so I just wanted to be flexible with it. I thought there was a world where pitching could really get pushed up here because of the 15 team format and because of the innings pitched situation. And I thought there was a world where people would kind of sleep on that, take hitters instead. And then I could try to rack up some wins on starting pitching. That latter situation did not come to pass. Like there were a bunch of times where I was going to try to I I think I have an edge in pitching starting with Strider, but I was going to try to really push that edge a little bit farther. And people went right before me, like Aaron Nola went right before I was going to add Aaron Nola to my team. There were just a couple of situations where I didn't get to really stack pitching the way that I had originally intended, even though I think I have a good edge with Strider at the top. I just missed on Reese Olsen when I took Garrett Mitchell and I was sure Truss was not going to snipe me on Reese Olsen. That's why I took Garrett Mitchell right there. I was like, oh, 2020 bat late and I can get Reese Olsen on the turn. And I did not. Uh, Reese Olsen is an arm I really like. I put Christopher Sanchez in my queue and I thought I was being sneaky because he wasn't going to go for like four rounds. And he went immediately after I put him in my queue. It was like there were there were a handful of dudes who I really like who I, I just got I mean, kudos to the people who play in our league. It's a really tough league, and they liked those guys as much as I did. I do think that one thing I did in this draft that I was not planning on doing, but I'm glad I did it, the last two picks I made, or maybe two of the last three picks, towards the end of the draft, took Martin Perez and Jose Quintana. They are so boring. They are going to pitch. They are going to pitch with an ERA and a whip that is better than league average, and they're going to throw a lot of innings for teams that are probably not very good. So they're not good for wins, but they're great for innings. And I was I was glad that I pivoted to add those two dudes to my rotation because I think it looks a lot better with them on. I wish we disagreed here, but unfortunately for the premise of the show, you and I took very similar approaches in this draft where I think we each have one starting pitcher in the first like 10 rounds, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. And 
or two starting pitchers in the first 10 rounds. You, you took one in the first, I took one in the second, and then I think we both took one in the fifth. And then I didn't realize I took Kodai Senga and it, I took Kodai Senga in the 11th round. And my problem there, that was kind of the pivot point for my entire draft because I, Walker Bueller lasted so long in this draft. And I get it. He's not going to throw a lot of innings this season. But every time he was like my top player for like four rounds and I just couldn't take him because I had already handcuffed myself by taking Kodai Senga, who's in the same spot where he might not pitch until May, but he might be really good from that point on. And then I took a couple of really good relievers who are probably going to be closers. And that's fine, except now looking back on it, I'm really weak in innings pitched because got Luis Castillo. He's great as long as that shoulder issue from two years ago doesn't come back. Max Freed, big question marks in terms of innings. Kodai Senga, even if he's healthy, he's going to pitch every sixth day. So there's a hard ceiling on how many innings I'm going to get out of him. Nestor Cortez Jr., I really like him. Probably not going to get a ton of innings out of him. Luis Severino, I think a bounce back is possible. He was my 19th round pick. Probably not like this. I kind of I kind of screwed myself over in the innings pitched part of it by probably not catering my approach enough to this format. Yeah, you know, my my strategy in a standard roto is I want two high-end pitchers in my first five picks, and then I don't want to think about starting pitcher until like the twelfth round. And that's what I did here. It's just when you when innings are a separate, discrete category unto themselves, rather than a function or a, a part of other categories like they are in a standard league, you can't just aim for upside and, and great ratios. And I, I I might be like dead last in innings pitch with this team. And I'm I'm really I'm really gonna have to play the waiver wire really smart this year to to really make up ground in that in that regard. Before we go to some questions, it's wild that you mentioned that we had really similar pitching strategies. I just went back and looked and you're right. We both had a pitcher in the first two innings. We took pitchers back to back in the fifth. Mm -hmm. We took pitchers back to back in the 11th. Yeah. (laughs) And then you actually went a little bit more pitcher heavy than I did. I trusted myself to find some of those guys later. And I got a couple of them like Jamison Mm -hmm. Tyon is is a dude who. I understand why people are out on him. I probably should be out on him, but (laughs) I like what he did after that Yankee start last year. And I think that he kind of fixed some things. He's working on a splitter. He's supposed to be the number three starter for the Chicago Cubs. So I'm kind of okay with Jamison Tyon, but yeah, I really had to add innings at the back end too. That's why Martin Perez and Jose Quintana come on down. Yeah. And it's really, it's the toughest thing about this league is, reorienting yourself to innings don't just matter because having a lot of innings helps your ERA. Although, you know, Aaron Nola is kind of a counterpoint to that last year, I guess, but it's, uh, they matter directly, not just because they come with a lot of K's and, and all that. They are a, a, their own category. And like I said, that's, I, I might be dead last in this league in that, in that regard, which is not a great feeling coming out of the draft. Yeah, definitely, definitely not at all. Like I, like I said, I, I've only played in like an innings pitch league in like a dynasty league, so it's a totally different aspect. Uh, but yeah, like just looking at the back end of y'all's draft, 
Sarah, you went old and boring and mm -hmm. Chris, you went kind of like upside, you know, with um, Edward Cabrera and Luis Severino. I mean, we've, we've kind of like, we've, we've kind of already talked about that uh, a little bit before. Um, but was that part of your thing? Chris, you wanted to go, oh crap. I'm feeling the pressure to get Ains pitch. Let me go for upside. And Sarah, you were just like, let me just go get the old, old buddy daddies. So let me I, just go ahead. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. I think for me, I just had trouble putting, turning that part of my brain off. Cause that's the way I always have approached fantasy is the second half of my draft is all about upside swings and starting pitchers. I want guys who can get a lot of strikeouts guys who, if they work out can give me a lot of VR, or, uh, ratios and, if they don't work out, they're easily expendable, and then I can churn. Probably not the right move in this being both an innings pitched and that 15-team format is the replacement level on the wire is going to be so, so much lower than it's been in the past. You know, we went, what, 150 picks deeper this time, and so that just – that really makes it difficult. So I'm – yeah, I, that that's what I wrote in my, in my write-up is – I. I kind of think I, I, I didn't ha handle that well. It's a, it's a really interesting contrast looking at the last like six rounds, seven rounds of our draft here. And I don't know which one of these is going to work out better. I, I have a couple of guys who are kind of fun here. I took Johan Rojas and I took Kyle Manzardo. I really believe in Johan Rojas. I actually handcuffed him with Whit Merrifield around before, which means that I've got the guy who's up next. If Rojas doesn't work out for some reason, but I believe that the hit tool is better than people think it is. And I don't think he's going to hit 300 again, but I think that he sold 16 bags and 148 plate appearances or whatever it was. And I want that speed. He's going to play if the defense plays. And as long as he doesn't hit like 200 or something, I think he's going to be okay. Kyle Manzardo might not make the team. I might have to drop him, but if he does make the team, that's a really interesting bat there. But the last three pitchers I took when I was feeling the crunch were Kyle Gibson, who I think is the most boring dude in the world, but I like St. Louis as a place to pitch and he's going to get innings. Martin Perez, who's super boring. I like Pittsburgh as a place to pitch, and he's going to get innings. Jose Quintana, who is super boring. I like the Mets field, city field, as a place to pitch, and he's going to get innings. And it was literally just like, I want innings that are not going to crush my ratios. And so I took those three dudes. And my last three pitchers were Edward Cabrera, Aaron Ashby, and Yariel Rodriguez, who I might not have a single starter <laughs> out of those three. So, I mean, I guess if if... Edward Cabrera ends up in a high leverage role for a 75 win Marlins team. Maybe I'll get 15 holds out of him, but yeah, the, that I, in looking at it, I, I think I prefer your approach to those end, those late rounds. We'll see how it works out. You've got a lot more K potential than I do. I've got a lot of guys who are just going to maybe throw at a 3.77, 4.2 clip. <laughs> Let's move to this reliever uh, debate. And, you know, relievers are really interesting. This is the flip side of the innings pitch question that we were just talking about. Shelly, you're going to moderate this one. Yeah. So because this was a different league, I decided to take a look at the reliever strategy. And it was kind of odd, I thought, um, just looking at it round by round. It The, the first it appears to me like the first closer didn't go into like the seventh round and that mm -hmm. was when one two three four five, five six six yeah six went in the round seven and that was after 
y'all guys because y'all had two three so it came back around and then that that whole closer kind of run went as 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 you know this league is like totally different you know it's uh saves plus holds did that like change your strategy in the middle of the draft or did you just stick with it so i my approach going in was well it's safe plus holds it democratizes the relief pitcher position there are twice as many holds available as saves i think that's that's what the number was last year roughly and so my thought was i can just get whoever good brian abreu and jason adam were like my top two guys they're, they're incredible pitchers they'll get some holds but then once you start to actually do the math and there are a lot more holds available but that's because in some games three guys might get a hold and only one person can get a save in any given game and so the the saves plus holds leaders are almost always guys who get a lot of saves because saves are much more concentrated in the hands of a handful of guys there are a lot more 20 hold guys there are fewer 30 hold guys than there are 30 save guys and so that's what I think is really tough about this league is if you focus primarily on really good middle relievers, you're going to get great ratios. You're going to get some strikeouts and you'll get those holds, but it's going to be really hard to actually compete for first place or top three, which is what you're typically aiming for in, in a roto league. It's really difficult to be top three in saves plus holds when you're just focusing on holds guys, you probably need three in your lineup at all times. And you need those guys to be really good and be productive and get 30 ish holds each because last year, and remember this is a 12 team, 70, 70 holds and 73 was six and seventh place. And so you basically needed like three full-time holds guys to get to that range. It's really it's going to be really hard to compete in innings pitched if you have three full-time middle relievers. And so that is the one where I think saves guys might actually be sort of underrated in this league because if you can get Emmanuel Class A, he had 44 saves last season. And that's with nine blown saves. And obviously I don't think he's going to do that again, but if you can get a legit 40 save guy, that puts you so far ahead that you might only need two high-end closers and you can be middle of the pack and not have to sacrifice innings pitched. And so that's one where I did get two closers. Uh, I got uh, Ryan Helsley and Pete Fairbanks. If they stay healthy, they should get a lot of saves, but I don't think anybody expects both of them to stay healthy. And so in retrospect, I wish I had either gone even further in not investing in reliefers and just going in the back half of my draft or and and taking starting pitchers where I took those guys or I kind of wish I had been in that seven round seven eight run of the truly high-end closers because I think I kind of left myself in the middle and specifically with that innings pitch thing that's where it gets really difficult yeah it is such a great point about how innings pitched make saves more valuable in this league than you would think they are originally. I think I've either won or come second in this league and saves and holds the last two seasons. The first year was actually kind of a mistake. I did take <laughs> Emmanuel Class A about two rounds earlier than I should have the first year I was in this league because I was just used to drafting closers earlier and I kind of had to stop myself and be like, oh, wait, I can wait on this a little bit. 
But that year, I think I had Class A and Presley, and then I had some Holds guys. And that skyrocketed me to the top of Saves and Holds because I had two legitimate closers, and then I had some Holds guys. Last year, I decided to wait a bit. I took Presley and Diaz, and then a bunch of Holds guys. And that still worked to get mm. me to the top of the thing, which was awesome. This year, I have one closer. <laughs> and Edward Alvalon, who I adore, who I believe has the job in Chicago, and I was able to get Hector Norris a couple of rounds later. So if Adbert doesn't have the job, I have the guy who has the job. I think uh, Julian Merriweather might like a word, but I'm pretty sure it's between those two dudes. I like being able to double dip in that bullpen because I like the fact that one of the things I had not thought about until I made the Norris pick is that because of the way you can have multiple holds in a game, but you can only have one save in a game, it makes sense to piggyback mm -hmm. a single bullpen together because you can get all of those quality innings in the games. Like what most teams have an A bullpen and a B bullpen. And so if you can get two or three guys in the same A bullpen, you can stack those wins and or those saves and holds in a way that is different in their wins than you can with other things. It also gives you some protection if your closer gets injured and your setup man becomes the closer, right? But I wish I had one more closer here. I don't. I think I'm not going to win the saves and holds portion of the league this year with the guys that I have. I like the talent I have. One of the things um, that the people over at Baseball HQ say all the time, and I think it's so true, draft skills, not roles. Like, I drafted skills in this draft. Mm -hmm. Alzali is a great pitcher. Norris is a great pitcher. Minter is probably a better pitcher than Rossiel Iglesias. Harvey is a better pitcher than Kyle Finnegan, but I'm not sure it's going to lead to me winning that particular category. Yeah, I mean, you just need to what finish like third or fourth in a league uh, in a in a category, and you can still like really complete uh, compete for the overall. So it's totally fine. I was just like really interested to see both y'all's strategies because yeah, I've only done this this particular type of draft in like a dynasty, which is a totally different ball of wax. So yeah, it's just really interesting to hear your thoughts. And the the thing that I thought was really interesting was last season. I only looked at last season, but only two teams finished in the top half of the league in both innings pitched and saves plus holds. So you really do have to either you, you can kind of go in the middle of both, which I, I was sixth in saves plus holds and uh, seventh saves plus holds fourth in innings pitched. And that was good enough to get me into third. Sarah, you were in second place and you were, I think ninth in innings pitched, fifth in holds plus saves. So you can compete there, but you definitely have to make a trade-off. And it's really interesting how, not surprising, how uncorrelated those two things are, but it just goes to show how how much that one change really changes how the results of the league will work. Yeah, I'm clearly misremembering how the saves holds category went last year. But yes, and I do think that you get an advantage from having those closers. So I'm going to mm -hmm. try to remember that next year when we're in this draft. I also think that one of the things that's tricky about this, it's like an NFBC league in the sense that you have just nine pitchers and you can kind of mix and match that mm -hmm. however you want. It's an advantage to be able to only use two of those spots on relievers. Yes. It's a huge advantage on the innings pitch side if you're not trying to throw in your third reliever there. The last thing I'll say about this, which I, I don't have an answer on, Chris, I'm curious what you think about this. Because of where I was at with innings pitched late in the draft, I couldn't take advantage of those mm -hmm. dudes, like the Matt Brashes of the world or the Matt Strom, who's like going to throw three innings and get a bunch of Ks and, you know, might get a save, might not. 
I wonder what a strategy that allows you to take advantage of those particular pitchers would look like. And I, I didn't do it this year, so I don't know. I feel like the the biggest thing would just be you have to get like, like I really like Aaron Nola this year. I think more than than most people, just because if ERA is going to be hard to predict, I'll take the guy who's the only thing he does poorly is every other year his ERA is terrible. And that, that seems like a pretty good bet. But I, I think in this format, you have to, you can't take a Max Freed, who I do like, and I, I have on my team. He's my SP2. But you can't get a guy who might only throw 160 innings, and that would be a good outcome, right? Like, I think I, I'd be happy if I got 160 innings for Max Freed in most leagues. But in this league, that's where it gets tougher. So I think if you can snag a Garrett Cole early and then an Aaron Nola to pair with him, that suddenly opens up your options at pitcher in a way that other strategies may not. That's a great point. Uh, We are going to take one more quick break for our sponsors. Uh, It's our last break of the episode. On the flip side, a couple more debates. We have love it or leave it, and we're going to finally figure out what I was thinking when I took Strider number two overall. But first, a quick break. All right, we're back. Shelly's going to bring us home moderating these last two debates. Kick it off, Shelly. Yeah, so... We have like the biggest kind of controversy and it was with Sarah's pick of Strider at number two. So Sarah, obviously you had no chance at Acuna Jr. And you obviously made the decision to go with Strider. Why'd you do it? I agonized over this. Like I I asked a bunch of friends if I was crazy, but here's what led me to think to do it. And then I just decided to do it after I did about 12 mock drafts in two different ways to see Um, how that was going to work. So I knew that I wanted the, I I was looking at auction values and Spencer Strider is not only five to $7 more valuable than the next best bats off the board who are Juan Soto and Aaron judge, but he is also like nine to $19 more valuable than the next best pitchers off the board. If you look at the bat auction calculator values, he is a $19 value over the next best pitcher. That's as large or larger than the gap from Acuna to the next best hitter. And the other reason I was thinking about this a lot is because the hitters that go highest in this format, the most valuable bats that are not Ronald Acuna Jr. are four-tool players, not five-tool guys. You get no steals from Juan Soto. You get no steals from Aaron Judge. The best bats that you should take next are dudes who will leave you with no steals. And I was like, do I want to set myself up in a hole with steals or would I rather just take the best pitcher and have this huge gap between the best pitcher and everybody else? And the last thing I'll say about this and the reason I liked it, in the mocks I did, one of two things happened consistently. Well, of course, this would happen no matter what. But like either pitchers kind of went all scattered throughout the first and second round, in which case I didn't really have a shot at another top tier starting pitcher and I could just take bats for a bit, which is what happened in this draft. Or pitchers didn't scatter. And somebody like Zach Wheeler made it back to me, or mm-hmm. Corbin Burns made it back to me. It's like inexplicably, George Kirby made it back to me. And then I could kind of go pocket aces and a bat, which would have just set my pitching for the rest of the draft. And I liked it. So I did it. I think pocket aces or, you know, not necessarily two aces in the first two rounds, but two in your first four is 
actually more of an ideal strategy than I think a lot of people think because historically there's 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 this concept of the RB dead zone in fantasy football where the first three rounds running backs are the best picks you can make and then after that it's just a crapshoot and there's really no difference between a running back you take in the fifth round and the running back you take in the ninth round that's the historical data basically lines up with that starting pitching is very similar there's a handful of guys who have shown they can do 200 innings every year with really good ERAs and, and can hold up to the workload. And then there's the guys that we wish could do that. Tyler glass now and, and Blake Snell. And then there are the guys that we're projecting to do that, but haven't done it. And what ends up happening is fifth through 12th round starting pitchers tend to be really bad investments. They, they tend to often return negative value or, the ones that hit hit really high, but the ones that miss miss really big. And so I actually think multiple early round starting pitchers is a really viable strategy. The problem with Spencer Strider, and it's a relative problem, right? He's, I think, the best pitcher in baseball on a per inning basis. But there have been some some red flags towards the end of the last couple of seasons. And we're, we're talking about a guy who has not done the workload. He has not gotten to the 200 inning mark in a season. He got to 186.2 last year. I think if you include the playoffs, he got to like 194 ish or something. Um, and that's that September was pretty rough for him. And I know the peripherals were still pretty good. He had the really bad postseason start in 2022 to one start sample size. Generally speaking, I think those are not big concerns, but it's in an innings pitch league in particular. I think I would give Garrett Cole an edge because I do think there's a chance that the strikeout rate comes back from last season. I, I think I'd bet on a little bit of regression there. I feel like he's a good bet for 250 strikeouts, not 280. Okay, Strider's got the edge there. I think Garrett Cole's probably... If I were projecting, I, I think I'd probably go 20 more innings with, you know, still very good ratios and and still a ton of strikeouts. So that's the one where I don't know if the edge that Strider gives you in this format, he might actually be better in the more traditional wins format because the Braves are going to score 8,000 runs. It's really interesting what you say about Garrett Cole there. I... <clears throat> You know, I, so this is the thing, this is one of those times where my gut instinct is sort of similar to yours mm -hmm. on that. Every projection system I ran through the auction calculator was just screaming at me that the value on Strider sure. in this format was incredible. Like better than what you could get from Soto, better than what you could get from Judge, but more so better than what you would get from Cole. Like, mm -hmm. and, and not like a tiny bit, like $10, <laughs> like $10, yeah. $10 value. When you have a pitcher who is showing a $50 value, and I, I don't know how you don't do that, right? It's the same reason yeah. everyone is taking Acuna 1-1. It's like, if you've got a $50 pitcher, the $50 pitcher goes second. And so I kind of wish that Truss had not taken George Kirby or that one of those other pitchers would have fallen to me because I think this is a much more defensible strategy mm -hmm. when it's pocket aces. And the one thing at the risk of arguing against myself that I don't love about this, both Spencer Strider and Justin Steele are like two pitch guys who are like 
overperforming all the things with two pitches. And mm-hmm. I, I know Strider's working on a curveball. We'll see how that goes. But it's and I know Strider is in a different conversation than Justin Steele. But I'm like, really, if you're going to turn into a pumpkin as a pitcher, it might be because you're a two pitch guy and people figure you out. And my rotation is built around two two pitch guys. So if my cat war season ends poorly, it's it's probably got something to do with that. <laughs> And I, I think both these guys are so interesting because they kind of are emblematic of the way that baseball has changed. Because, I mean, even eight years ago, does Justin Steele, who throws a 91-mile-an-hour fastball and, and a slider, does he even get tried as a starter, as a lefty? Like, I, I'm not even sure he gets the opportunity at the major league level. And, and Strider's probably closing. He's probably Jonathan Papelbon you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So I I think that there is a lot of focus on this guy needs a third pitch. This guy needs to be able to go through, but because going through the third time through the order is so much less important in the eyes of, and Strider still does that steal to it to a lesser degree does it as well. But it it just, I think they both are indicative of the way this landscape has changed and the way we view what guys like that who have quote unquote limited skill sets are capable of because we're in a spam your best pitch era. And I think that's probably the right way to approach it. So I I, I like the pairing of them in that sense. Yeah, I, I just I don't know, because I've I've never played in this league. I just when I looked at the like the first two or three rounds. I just was like boggled that Soto didn't go to everyone knows how much I love Soto. Uh, and I'm just like, I don't know, even though it's an innings pitched uh, saves plus holds, it's still an OBP and OBP just like mm-hmm. rules my mind. And I'm like, if you can get someone like Soto who has like a 400 OBP, it just sets you up better for, you know, like those late round, especially like a, a 15 team league. You can, you can take like a, a, a ho-hum kind of outfielder because outfielder gets like super deep and super not fun to play in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just gives you like that extra cushion as opposed to with Strider. I, I, I totally believe you, Sarah, that he's just like totally above and beyond everyone else. It just, I don't know. I feel a little bit better going with like a Soto at the top and filling in at pitching versus the way you did it. So I, I found it, I find, I find it absolutely fascinating. I was thinking about you when I picked Strider over Soto, cause I knew Shelly was going to be like, take Soto. What are you doing? And I also, I only have Soto on one team right now. Um, I have him on a gladiator team that I drafted probably in like, I don't even know, December, January or something like that. And I, I love that I have Soto on a team. Cause I actually, I think Soto is going to blow his projections out of the water. I think that, what uh, projections see for him is like kind of the same thing he did in San Diego last year. And he's going to a much better park mm-hmm. and it's a contract year and he's Juan freaking Soto. And I just like, every time I look at the projections, like he hit 35 home runs last year and he'll hit 36 or 37 this year. I'm like, you are wrong. <laughs> You're just wrong. Juan Soto's going to mash. And as long as he's healthy, like it's going to be a 45, 46 home run campaign. He's going to be driving in. Yankees all over the place and he might even steal some bags just to prove that he can because he wants a 500 million dollar deal and Scott Boris is going to try to negotiate that for him and I just 
felt like taking Strider was the right thing, but I'm going to have FOMO on Soto all year. Well, he's on my team. So you can, <laughs> you can live vicariously through me. Great. I'll just DM you every time Soto hits off. I love it. <laughs> all right. We have one last debate and then we have love it or leave it. Shelly, take us home. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we're going to just round it round the whole thing. Um, so we're going to go same idea, but different. Um, just kind of looking at, because y'all had back-to-back picks, right? So just like looking at kind of like how y'all did. Um, so I'll go with this first one first. Uh, Lindor versus Seeger in the third. Chris, you first. I'll be honest. So th- this was one where I didn't get the choice. I ended up having to to settle for Seeger and... I'll, I'll argue against myself. I, I wish that that was one I got. It's kind of silly to complain about getting sniped in the early rounds because it's like the best players in baseball, but I really wanted Vlad jr. With my second pick. I really wanted Francisco Lindor with my third pick. Both of them were gone one pick before I picked And so that, that was super frustrating because I do think, you know, Lindor, the, the way he, Obviously, the the counting stats and the power speed combination is really valuable for him, and it always is. But he showed some real improvement in the terms of the quality of contact metrics last season. Francisco Lindor has always been one of those guys who gets the most out of what he has because he pulls the ball on, from both sides of the the plate. He he maximizes what is generally good but not great raw power. Well, last year he had the highest average exit velocity of his career. He had the highest barrel rate of his career. Hard hit rate was the second highest of his career. Like all these quality of contact metrics were the the best or the second best that they've ever been for him. And it it showed in a way that I think a 30-30 floor feels pretty reasonable for Francisco Lindor. Like I don't think he's gonna get to 38 homers again like he did in 2018, but I, I think he is like the perfect third round pick. He's not a he's not a first rounder. And I, I think there are like 19 first round caliber players is kind of the way I'm thinking about it. I'm putting Corbin Burns, Garrett Cole, and Spencer Strider in there. I think Francisco Lindor is right after that group. And so I was very bummed that I didn't get him there. Well, this is not going to make your day because I actually <laughs> like Seeger a little bit more than Lindor, all things being equal. But I picked Lindor there specifically for two reasons. One, Seeger being hurt. And I know he's always, he always misses like 20 mm-hmm. to 30 games. And it's like not unique, right? Like we know what Seeger's value is in the 130 ish games that he is going to play in a season. But I don't like taking a guy who's already injured with my, with one of my first three picks. And I, didn't really want to take Seager for that reason. But the other factor that played into this for me, even though like head to head, both healthy, I like Seager better than Lindor, was that because this wasn't a standard five category situation, I didn't have some guy who I thought was going to get me 40, 50 steals from Mm -hmm. the first round. I had Marcus Simeon, who Simeon's great. Simeon's going to steal 20 bags and do wonderful Marcus Simeon things. He's probably Mm going to get 700 plate appearances and plays right in the middle of a Rangers team that is great for all offensive category production, but he's not going to steal 50 bags like a Nico Horner. He's not going to steal, you know, Corbin Carroll bags or Julio Rodriguez bags. And so I felt like Lindor was the smarter pick because he does have that 30, 30 upside. And by the way, 
we do not talk about Francisco Lindor as a 30-30 guy enough. Like 30-30 is legit and amazing. And Francisco Lindor is super underrated somehow. And I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I mean, um, I like both players. Um, but yeah, I, I really do like the Lindor pick just basically just because he's healthy right at right at Jump Street, right? Seeger is not. Uh, they say that he's going to be ready at the start of the season, but who knows? Uh, you know, stuff stuff can linger. So yeah, yeah um, but yeah, I do like those those two um, those two back to backs. Um, let's go with another back to back. Uh, Steele versus Freed. We've talked about both pitchers uh, briefly and uh, throughout this entire podcast, but Sarah, you went with uh, Steele instead of Freed because both of the pitchers were on the board. Outside of you being a Cubs fan, why'd you go with Steele over Freed? Because I was talking to Sirius XM Radio and I went with my heart <laughs> over my head. No, I like. I mean, <laughs> that's ninety percent of it. Uh, I love Justin Steele. I'm higher on Justin Steele than probably anyone in the industry because I watch him all the time and I see what he does on a day to day basis. And at this point in time, like I think it's worth noting, go back to his breakout, which was a day where John Lester happened to be watching him in June of 2022 and called his buddy David Ross and was like, hey, I think if Steele sequenced his pitches this slightly different way, he'd be much better. And then Justin Steele did that. And basically has looked exactly like John Lester ever since. And I, I think it's worth remembering that John Lester was an exceptionally good pitcher, that that little cutter situation that he had going on had longevity and legs and it fooled batters for a really long time. And I watched Justin Steele do this John Lester impersonation every fifth day. And he always gets out of tough situations. It's crazy. Like he's sitting there in the fifth, he's got two guys on, he gets out of it, pitches a scoreless sixth and, I don't know what's going on there. I admit it looks like a mirage that is going to vanish someday, but we've got more than 250 innings of it right now. And he has an ERA in like the 2.5 range. He's got a great defense behind him. His pitch mix generates a ton of weak contact. And I think he's going to be healthier than Max Freed. And so I went for innings pitch there. I might be wrong. Max Freed is a better pitcher objectively. Yeah, I think like, it really just comes down to health. You know, Freed missed some time last year with a blister. I don't worry about that. He missed some time with a hamstring injury. Don't really worry about that. Like he's had a couple of blisters, but he usually misses the minimum and then is back. It's the forearm strain that he went on the 60 day with and came back and had no problems. Looked like Max Freed. He, he has had an ERA below two, six and three of the last four seasons. Granted two of them, are relatively small sample sizes, but the other season was 304 in 170 innings. So he's just elite at run prevention. He is elite at limiting hard contact in a way that, I mean, really, he, he shares a lot of similarities to like Kyle Hendricks in that it's not, it's never going to blow you away with the strikeout rate, although Freed is consistently average to above average in a way that that Hendricks wasn't, but it's the ability to limit hard contact that makes Max Fried so special and, and keeps him overperforming or whatever metric you want it. Like it, it's a skill. We are what eight, 600 in a 700 innings into his career where he has a 339 expected Wobon contact league average is 369. That's a really large sample size where you're not faking it. 
at that point. So I really, I think Max Fried's the better pitcher. And, you know, in 2022, he averaged more than six innings per start. He got to 185 innings. Like, I think he can give me the ace workload. Coming back from a season where he had a forearm strain is it's just a huge red flag that, that makes me really scared to have him as my second pitcher. But the upside is, I, I think, certainly higher. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, the more I, I talk with Sarah on the regular, the more I keep putting pushing Justin Steele up. So thank you, mm-hmm. Sarah, for uh, for all that. But I, I do agree with you also, Chris, uh, with, with Freed and his talent. Um, I'm just curious, just, just to ask a question. Mm-hmm. If he had, if the Braves have ex- had extended him prior to this offseason, would that give you any more confidence in drafting him where you did? Sure. I mean, they, they know him best, right? Yeah. Like it's one of those things where I think back to, um, you know, Carlos Rodon, I think his, the year before he signed with the Yankees, I think, did he, he, I, I'm trying to remember. I think he signed a, a one-year deal with the giants where they gave him the, the qualifying offer and, and people were like, well, he didn't sign the long-term deal or whatever. But my thought was the team that, knew him best was willing to give him a pretty big deal. And so I, there's no guaranteeing injuries and, and too many people tend to think too much about injuries in a binary. This guy's injury prone and that guy isn't. And what it actually is, is that every starting pitcher has like a 30% chance of going on the IL in any given season. And Max Fried's chances are probably higher than Justin Steele's. Certainly Carlos Rodon's are higher than Logan Gilbert's who has never missed a start in his professional career, but they're all doing the same violent motion that is really bad for the ligaments in your arm. So they're all, they've all got injury risks. So at some point you just got to take the guy when they're the best player available. And, and that's, that's where I got with Freed. but yeah, I would feel better if the Braves had, uh, you know, ha- had given him that vote of confidence. Sure. It's a really great point about injuries. I feel like with all baseball players, injuries are inevitable, but with pitchers, especially like we know that this is a, it's a motion that is just, you're going, not supposed to do it. Your shoulder, your elbow, your hands, your wrist, like everything you're doing is to create as much torque as possible on a baseball and make it do weird things that fool the batter. And you, I think that, all of this injury prediction business and like the injury grades that Jeff Zimmerman has and the, all of the charts that we look at and stuff, they don't predict an individual pitcher's health in a single season. They can't, they don't know Mm -hmm. what pitch is going to do it or what thing is going to do it. Yeah. I mean that, that's why like I, one of the things that I've talked about a lot is there is, we are so as a collective baseball world, we are so good at quantifying everything. Like I am not smart enough to understand some of the stats that come out. I remember baseball prospectus did like pitch tunneling stuff a couple years ago. And I thought it was so interesting. And it was also like reading in a different language. I could not understand it. Inverted uh, vertical approach angle and all like, I I'm so happy that there are smart people doing this work. I can't understand it myself personally, all of it, but it's, like we're so granular with everything. And then with injuries, so much of the way we talk about injuries is vibes based. Like 
that guy, that guy just doesn't, he can't stay healthy. And it's like, well, he hasn't. That doesn't mean he can't moving forward. And conversely, Sandy Alcantara was the iron horse in major league baseball. And now he's not pitching this year. Like these things all exist on a continuum of probabilities, but we tend to talk about it as if that guy's injury prone, that guy's not, I will not take the injury prone guy. And that's not actually how the world works. And so I think actually like being relatively uh, skeptical about our ability to predict injuries is probably still an edge that you can get in fantasy baseball. At least that's my dumb guy theory about it. I don't think that's dumb at all. I think that's pretty smart. And in fact, injured guys are where we're going to, we're going next. Shelly, bring us home on the debate section of today's podcast. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to go with a uh, two third basemen that are currently injured. Uh, uh, Josh Young uh, is injured again, yet again, in spring training. And Marte, uh, Noel V. Marte, who injured his hamstring playing winter ball. Uh, Chris took Josh before uh, Sarah took Marte. So, Chris, why'd you go with Young over Marte? For me, it's that... Young is a player who doesn't really rely on speed or athleticism. And so the fact that he's dealing with a calf strain this far out from the start of the season, you know, I think that the injury was first announced about two weeks ago from when we're talking. And so that was a two to three week timetable was, was what they gave that he would start working. And, and hopefully in a week we'll find out he's working and it'll look great, but obviously that's not a guarantee, but Relative to Marte, I, I always feel icky about the injury that just won't go away. And and I feel kind of similarly about Matt McClain, Noavi Marte's teammate, who has had, had this oblique injury at the end of last season, was supposed to be fine all year, except we started to get some reports in like November, December that it was still bothering him, but that it was going to be totally fine by the start of spring training. And then we get to the start of spring training and it's like, He's got an oblique injury, but don't worry. It's a, it's a different part of the oblique. It's totally, and it's like that those, when the injuries linger like that, that's where it's like, why can't this guy get past this and what's going to happen when, but I think spring training injuries are always scary because this is the time of year where injuries occur the most frequently. And so I'm very worried that Josh Young is going to try to come back three days too early and suffer a setback. That's always a concern. It's the concern with Kyle Bradish. It's the concern with Kodai Senga, who's also on my team. That That's always a concern when you're at this part of the draft. But Young's injury feels a little less concerning to me. And I also just, I'm not sure Marte's got a job. That's the biggest thing. I was talking to Jared Selder from Baseball Perspectives recently because when I first started my research for the season, I was like, I don't know why Noelle Marte is going so much further behind Matt McClain and Ellie De La Cruz. He's got a similar skill set. He's a super talented player. He's three years younger than Matt McClain. And the the biggest thing is just, it's not clear where Marte is going to play on the field. Like even if the Reds weren't super crowded, there are real questions about his long-term defensive home. And I think everybody on the Reds has to hit to have a job because there, there are, way too many there are 10 guys for eight spots basically and Marte's off to a delayed start there are concerns about his defensive home and so it just I I worry he's going to be in I, I think they're Louisville is their 
their affiliate. So yeah, I'm worried that that Louisville is going to be where he's playing come April, unfortunately. It's not going to be a very good debate because I agree with all of that. And frankly, I had both of those dudes in my queue and I was hoping that somebody ahead of me would make the decision for me. Mm-hmm. And Chris did by taking Josh Young, who was on my team last year. And I love Josh Young, but you know, speaking about injuries that linger, like that calf injury is the injury he was dealing with at the end of last year. And it's like, mm-hmm. why is the calf injury still there? Like what's going on with Josh Young and this calf? Yeah. And I, I really like Josh Young. I think the bat is special. Like, I think he's got a lot of power. I think he has more power than Noel V. Marte does. I think Noel V. Marte has a more like balanced sort of, I mean, we're just talking about Francisco Lindor, that like mm-hmm. 20, 20, 30, 30 type of guy. I 100% agree with you on the Reds playing time situation. I am very nervous about every Reds infielder not named Jamer Candelario. And that's a wild thing to say when you look yeah. at the talent that they've got, that the only guy who looks like he for sure has a job as Jamer Candelario. Um, that said, they have said Candelario is going to play. Mm-hmm. This is an aside. It's not relevant to the debate we're having right now, but I actually think Candelario is going to rake in Great American Ballpark. He's yes. a target of mine in every draft that I'm in. He has, he's like kind of a doubles machine. He's not a home run guy, so we don't think of him as a power guy, but that but keeps the slugging up. Yeah, it keeps the slugging up. It keeps the WRC plus up. It means he drives in a lot of runs. But he's, this is the first time he gets to play in a really good hitter's park. He would, That dude was lost in Detroit. Like, mm-hmm. You know, like, I am so excited to see what he's going to do in Great American Ballpark. But I agree with you. The risk on Marte is big, and that's why I'm glad he's in my UT spot and that I have some other guys that I can put into that spot, hopefully, in the event that he starts in Louisville, because I think Chris is absolutely right that that is a possibility. Yep. And it is also a possibility that he starts the season on the IL, which actually mm-hmm. might help you uh, because it's an unlimited ILs, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yep. Unlimited. Yep. Oh. One of the best parts of Tat Wars, unlimited <laughs> ILs. Um, yes, that is do. that is something I love about Tat Wars. We're going to talk about things we can love or leave this week in baseball. And Chris, as our guest, kick us off. What's your love it or leave it this week? Baseball games are back. I mean, what 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 else do I have to say? Shohei Otani hit a home run today. I mean, it was, it was fun to do the joking. It's so Shover. This, this signing is the worst signing in baseball. It's a good thing. They're only paying him $2 million. It's fun to get those jokes off when he strikes out in his first at bat. And then he hits a classic Shohei Otani opposite field home run, which remains one of the most impressive things anyone in baseball does aside from him also pitching. Uh, So baseball games are back out of context. Stat cast screenshots are back. Complaints about balls and strikes in spring training are back, which just don't do it. It's fine. We'll we'll, we'll have plenty to complain about when the game starts. But I'm going to real life baseball games this weekend. I can't wait. I'm gonna go to. I'm gonna be in Tampa. I'm gonna get a pub sub and I'm gonna go watch baseball. I can't wait. That is hard to top. But Shelly, I think you've got something good coming up here as well. I what's your love it or leave it this week? Uh, yeah, it's like my my only live draft of the year is this weekend. Uh, I'm not going to be in town for very long. I'm coming in Saturday night, leaving Monday morning. So I'll just basically be in there for a day. So I don't get to watch any baseball games, but I get to actually do a live uh, you know, salary cap draft, which I just find absolutely fascinating because you actually get to see people and watch uh i don't i don't know i maybe i'm like a semi like 
closeted like poker player. I love to watch people whenever you outbid them and see their reactions. Oh, it is it is so sweet. It is it is so good. So I'm excited just to get back into the into the live draft room. You know, a live auction is one of for our little crew of nerds who love fantasy sports and understand the machinations and like what people are trying to do. It doesn't get much better than a live auction. I think some of those labor auctions are actually going to be streamed. And so I will be watching uh, f- from far away in Chicago, I'm, not I'm, in Florida with y'all, but um, I, know I will my, be watching those. I know my own limitations and I know my own psychology. And, and when someone does the last minute bid up, when I think I'm going to get a player, I completely melt down. It's the worst thing about my personality when I'm doing these. And so I, I haven't done like an actual salary cap slash auction in person in like half a decade. And so I, I'm not sure how I'm going to handle myself. I just want to apologize ahead of time. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm going to watch both of your auctions. It's going to be, a, are you in the same auction? You're not in the same auction, right? No, I think I'm Friday. Yeah, I'm, I'm Sunday. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Uh, my love it or leave it. Cody Bellinger is back on the Cubs where he belongs. But the part of this that I want to talk about is not the Cubs part of it, which I love. It's the structure of the deal part of it. Because the thing that is holding up the offseason for all of the best free agents who are left is that they're represented by Scott Boris. And the teams who are remaining are not the teams that normally deal with Scott Boris. Boris wants $200 plus million for Blake Snell. He wants $200 plus million for Jordan Montgomery. He probably wants something north of 160 for Matt Chapman. All of these free agents have question marks and it's going to be difficult for him to come to terms with the teams who are remaining. And I think what the Cubs did here is put together a contract that look, I don't love it from a CBA like players relations standpoint. I think Cody Bellinger is a former MVP and a former rookie of the year. He is 28 years old and it should not be a stretch to get that man $180 million Mm -hmm. to $220 million deal. But for whatever reason, because Juan Soto went to the Yankees and the Dodgers signed some other guys and yada, yada. Here we are. Cody Bellinger is going to make $30 million in 2024 playing for the Cubs. And then he has an opt out. So if he proves it again, he gets to hit the free agent market again at 29. He's going to be guaranteed $30 million at age 30 for the Chicago Cubs. And then he has an opt out after that. So if he proves it in 2025, (laughs) he can hit the free agent market at the ripe old age of 30 And then he has a guaranteed $20 million for that last season in 26 if he doesn't opt out before either of the other two. I think this is a very good deal for a player with question marks. Mm -hmm. I think it's the best that you can expect from this crew of teams that don't want to ever exceed their spreadsheet values. And I think it's a way to break the Boris logjam that has held up some of our favorite players finding new homes. I mean, it's basically the Carlos Correa deal from two years ago and he ended up still getting 200 million the next off season, despite, you know, all the concerns about his foot. So yeah, I, I think it'll probably work out for Cody Bellinger. I'm, I'm skeptical about what he did last season, but I think this deal makes perfect sense for both teams that this was a, I, I think a win win on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, I'm glad to see, uh, you know, Bellinger, back with the Cubs uh, because they kind of needed it. Um, And, you know, I think that they're, you know, the best lineup in the NL Central, which could be faint praise. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm just, we, I I always thought that he was going back there. It just like fits so well. So just to see him there, it's really great. 
Yeah, the NL Central is an object lesson in what happens when an entire division is like, hey, we could win the division with 85 wins and just get lucky in October. And nobody has any incentive to push beyond that. But that is a podcast for another day. I'm so grateful to Chris and Shelly for joining me today. Chris, where can people find you? Where can they find your work? And what are you working on? Uh, CBSSports.com slash Fantasy Baseball. I do the Fantasy Baseball Today newsletter five times a week, Monday through Friday. I probably write too much for it, but it gets sent to your news your inbox every morning for free. Go to CBSSports.com slash newsletters to sign up and the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast on uh, Spotify, po- Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. It's an excellent podcast. You should definitely listen to it after you listen to this. And I get that newsletter every single day. It's super helpful. Shelly, what are you working on? And where can people find you? Yeah, um, you can find me over at uh, Roto World. Um, I'm doing like a a weekly hot stove um, article that talks about signings. So I actually got to write about Bellinger this week, which was great. I had something to write about. So hopefully Blake Snell comes by the end of the week. So yeah, but you could just catch me over there and you can catch me over on Twitter at Shelly V underscore 643. Awesome. You can find me at Twitter and whatever other social media sites we're on these days uh, at BCB underscore Sarah, except for Blue Sky, where they don't let you have underscores. So that's just at BCB Sarah there. Um, You can find my Cubs writing at Bleed Cubby Blue. I think I might have cracked the case on Cody Bellinger and I'm working on a piece about whether or not his changes from last season are sustainable that should be out later this week. And then you can find my fantasy writing over at Baseball HQ, where I am writing the playing time tomorrow and Ellie's column every week. Uh, We will be back next week with all of the most relevant and interesting fantasy baseball debates. And you won't want to miss that episode. We're going to be joined by Justin Mason and Paul Spore doing some sleeper in the bust debates. I'm going to see if I can find some controversies there. And something tells me it won't be hard to get Justin and Paul to argue with each other. Uh, So be sure you're subscribed to the show. If you like the show, leave us a five-star review and a rating. It helps other people find us, which is super helpful as this is just our fifth episode ever. So we're trying to build that audience. So definitely subscribe and leave us a rating. Uh, Until next time.